You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The really hard thing is that these particular synthetic IDs and the fraudsters that are behind them, they're very, very, very patient. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Sanjay Gupta from MyTech. He's going to be sharing a story about how cyber criminals are capitalizing on the recently deceased to create synthetic identities. Real interesting one there. All right, well, let's kick things off here, Joe. What story do you have for us this week? So, Dave, this week I have a story from the Sloan Review, which is a publication of MIT. And it's from three guys. And one of them is Stephen Wilson. Then you got Dean Hamilton and Scott Stahlbaum. And they are all from Wilson Paramol and Company. And uh, Stephen Wilson is one of the co-founders of this. And they're talking about cybersecurity, and one of the big problems in cybersecurity and and kind of the subject of the show is that the people are the weakest link. Hmm. And these guys point out that there is a model that we can follow here to try to resolve this. And they call Hmm. it – it's actually an existing concept in management. It's called the High Reliability Organization or the HRO, Hmm. right? Now, this is a concept. The HRO is a concept that came out of – Practices originated more than 60 years ago in the United States Navy's nuclear propulsion program. The Navy has a number of nuclear-powered vessels, and they (laughs) generally come in three classes. They come in – there's aircraft carriers that are nuclear-powered. There's the ballistic missile submarines and the fast attack submarines. All their submarines in the Navy now are nuclear-powered vessels, and all the aircraft carriers are nuclear-powered vessels. Right. Uh, we did have nuclear-powered cruisers, but we have since shut that down. We've decided that a cruiser is not worth the risk of a nuclear reactor. I was but, just thinking about nuclear-powered dinghies. Right. How <laughs> they advised, yeah. In Baltimore, there is a nuclear-powered cruise ship. It's been – it's not a nuclear-powered cruise ship anymore, but it was a nuclear-powered cruise ship at one point in time. Hmm. And it's just docked there. And I don't know what the nuclear regulations are around it exactly, but they can't scrap the ship because it was a nuclear-powered vessel. Uh, um, I, they, you know, it's funny. I remember back from my days at University of Maryland, and this is back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the state was going through some budget challenges. And so they were going through and deciding what departments they could shut down or scale down and so on and so forth. And I remember reading in the, the school newspaper, it turns out we had a nuclear reactor on campus. Yes. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, they, and, and it, it was not cheap to run, but it was more, even more expensive to shut down. Yes, they are so, very expensive to shut down. <laughs> so the, the reactor kept running. Yeah. There are actually anyway, a number I digress. Of, yeah, that's a small probably a small research reactor and there are a yeah. surprisingly large number of those around the country. Okay. Um, yeah. It's uh <laughs> it's interesting. The problem of putting a nuclear reactor on a ship for a propulsion system was a new problem and it was a really interesting problem because this the, you know, it's not a nuclear reactor is not a simple thing, right? And right. it the boat then has to run or the ship has to run underwater as well if it's a submarine. And mm-hmm. It's going to be operated by people that are 20 to 20 to 30 years old. Right. Right. right so right. you really have to come up with a way to have this operate safely because this is not an environment where things can go wrong. 
right? Because when yeah. they do go wrong, they're going to go wrong in a disastrous consequence, mm-hmm. a disastrous mm-hmm. manner, rather. This meant actually getting away from the traditional military culture of follow orders, do what you're told, and don't ask questions. And I have this very apocryphal story. This is this comes from somebody I used to work with years ago, and I'm not I'm not <laughs> entirely sure, but he was a uh, a submariner, and he was, which means he worked on a submarine, and he was um, in the Navy at the time that Admiral Rickover, who's the guy that built all of the nuclear submarine program, was in the Navy, and the culture of this program was that you were in charge of something that was your domain and you were responsible for the safety of it. And the story this guy told me was that he was working with something and Admiral Rickover came over and started messing with something. And he said, Admiral, please do not touch that. That's not something you're supposed to do. And Admiral Rickover said, okay, and then kept touching it. And eventually what the guy did was he picked up Admiral Rickover and moved him, you know, essentially physically moved Admiral Rickover. This is an enlisted man moving Admiral Rickover out of the compartment that he was in. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but that's the kind of culture. And, and his story was that that was the test that Admiral Rickover was performing, right? That Admiral Rickover knew that you had to have a culture where people would say, no, mm. don't do that. That's dangerous, hmm. right? And, and that's one of the features of this high reliability organization. Uh, I, I was thinking that guy was going to have an, uh, an intimate uh, familiarity with the torpedo tubes. Right. Well, that's kind of the point. This article outlines some pillars of the HRO organization, and one of them is formality, right? People follow an authorized procedure, and they don't use workarounds. That's one of the big things in a high-reliability organization. Uh, And they have a level of knowledge. That's another pillar. So not only are they following the procedure, but they know why they're following the procedure. and. Then there are other pillars like integrity that people can be relied upon, a questioning attitude like like in my story. People anticipate problems and are alert to conditions, and they ask what could go wrong and why are you doing that, and those kind of things, and an active team backup. These are the five pillars they, that these guys outline in this Sloan Review article from MIT. There's some interesting things in here that I think bear well. There's a management policy that people are expected to be results-oriented or do whatever it takes in order to achieve their outcomes, right? And that, that there's some kind of reward for this. But mm-hmm. these, are the, these are the kind of attitudes and activities that can lead to workarounds, right? And workarounds are what cause problems in a lot of these social engineering scams, right? If I get an email from someone who is claiming to be my boss and may actually even be sending an email to me from my boss's email account because their email has been compromised, and they're saying, look, I need you to get this done, and this just needs to happen, right? If, if I work in an organization where when I hear that, I know we're not supposed to do that, we're not supposed to do workarounds, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then I'm less likely to fall for this scam. Superiors who say to their, their teams, and this is, this is something I've heard a lot of, bring me solutions, not problems, <laughs> right? That, that is a big thing that, that superiors say. I've often thought that depending on what level of management you're at, right? When you're working with people who are individual contributors, all they're ever going to bring you is problems, right? They're never going to bring you solutions. You're, well, unless, I mean, they're going to bring you the solutions to the problems that you give them, but during the course of that, they're going to come back with problems that are beyond their control. You're going to have to work on these problems, right? Mm-hmm. It's, th- that's part of the role of management, in my opinion, anyway. Maybe I don't know much about management. Who knows? Um, <laughs> anyway, this, uh, I think this, this article makes some really good points. 
I really, 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 really think that this is going to be very difficult to turn every organization into a high reliability organization, right? And I don't think that's the point the article's making. I think the article's saying we can use this as a model. I really think, and I've said this many times before, that the formality is probably the biggest benefit, what they call the formality pillar, is probably the biggest benefit to uh, avoiding being scammed out of millions of dollars. And that is that we have a process for moving money around our system or our banking accounts and whatever. And here's how that process works. And if someone asks you to deviate from that process, then you know that something has gone wrong and that needs to be reported. Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a problem in doing that, right? But having the attitude, particularly in small companies where you can't say, bring me solutions, not problems, or do whatever it takes, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen to get these companies off the ground. And in a small company, there's people who have to have almost heroic roles, right? Where they're, they're accomplishing things that in short amounts of time that could not be accomplished by a large organization right. it, because they're much more nimble as, a, as an organization and people have this autonomy. So I don't think this is universally applicable. I think it could be applied specifically to financial operations. And with that, you would go a long way to reducing your risk of being scammed out of large amounts of money. All right. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Interesting indeed. We'll have a a link uh, to that report for sure in the show notes. My story this week uh, comes from NBC News, written by uh, April Glazer, and uh, it's titled, People who turn to Upwork to find freelance gigs say they've lost thousands of dollars to scams. Huh. So I have to say I have only passing familiarity with Upwork. My understanding, it's one of those online services that connects people with gigs, little jobs and so on and so forth. You know, people who are looking for someone to do, uh, maybe not hire a full-time employee, but hire someone to do some stuff for them. Uh, Freelancers. It's a freelancing platform. Right. And what they're seeing is that people will reach out to folks on Upwork. And this is a a type of scam that we've seen before. They'll they'll reach out to someone on Upwork. They'll say, I'm going to need you to do some work for me. You'll be working from home. And for example, I'm going to put some money in your account so that you can set up your home office. Right. And then I'm going to need you to order your home office supplies from this site online. Yep. Or something like that. And so what happens is the the victim of this, the person who's just looking for freelance work, they get a, a notification from the person who's employing them saying, hey, the money's in your account. They do a quick check maybe with their bank on their their app or whatever, and they see the money in their account and they say, aha, the money's in there. They start to spend against that, but it turns out that that's part of the scam. The money gets clawed back by the person who put it in there. It was never really put in, right? The check was usually a fraudulent check. Correct. Correct. Right. So the, the notification was incomplete. In, in other words, it did, the money did not go through. The, the, the notification was merely that the transaction had been put in place, but the actual money had not been transferred. Yeah, I think I'm not sure about this, but I think there's a law that says when someone makes a deposit via check that that money has to be available to them within two business days. And sometimes it takes longer than two business days to actually process a check. Yeah. And that's what these scammers are taking advantage of. 
There are rules like that. It's been a while since I've dealt with this, so it's possible that they've changed. But I do remember when when I had a small business that it was not unusual for banks to say, oh, it's going to take X number of days for a check to clear. And if it's an out-of-state check, it's going to take even longer to clear. And honestly, we would, at the time, we would go to our bank and we'd say, that's unacceptable. We, we, we can't wait a week for a check to clear just because it's out of state. And the bank would say, okay. So, <laughs> so, so I think what was happening was that, you know, the bank makes money, uh, floating your money. Right. So, you know, that, that was that. But getting back to this story, right. What happens is these, the victims of this scam, they spend against that money that they think was put in their account. They buy these supplies and, you know, the supplies never come or they, you know, they're, they're making purchases on behalf of the, the person they think has hired them. Uh, out of their own money, out of their own account, because they think that they have money in their account from their alleged employer. Right. But it all turns out to be a scam. They're, that that money did not come through. They're spending against their own money. And typically they're using some of these online cash apps uh, and they can't claw that money back. Right. So the scammers get the money. The victim is out of the money. Another interesting thing that they highlighted in this story is that a consistent step in this is that the scammer wants to get the victim off of the original platform as quickly as possible. Get them off of Upwork. So oh, they, Upwork. they initiate their communications on Upwork, but as quickly as possible, they want to get off of that platform. So right. that move it to something like WhatsApp or Telegram, right? Right. Well, somewhere else or even just email, you know, somewhere where they, they take the platform's ability to intercede out of the equation. Right. In other words, none of the financial stuff is happening via Upwork or so, so Upwork's lawyers, Upwork's, you know, relationship with law enforcement or any of those types of things that gets taken out of the equation as quickly as possible. Yes. Does Upwork have means of vendors getting paid? I don't know if they have something built into the platform or not. It's, it's a good question. I, I don't see anything about that in this article. Another thing that this article points out is that you know, this sort of scam is not that unusual on these platforms. And some folks they talk to in the article are critical of these freelancing platforms of not doing a better job of warning people to be on the lookout for these sorts of things. You know, they have some information about what to do if you've been scammed, if you dig through their website and, you know, go to those sorts yeah. of pages. But but they're making the point that it's probably in the onboarding process, it would be helpful if they had some information that said, hey, look, <laughs> keep your eye out for these sorts of things. I think that's a 100% valid point that these all of these platforms should have that as part of their, what you call an onboarding process here. I mean, because what they're doing is essentially offering this service, while yes, it has a legitimate use, they're also offering this service out to open up tons of victims to be scammed by scammers on a massive scale. It's not like I'm just starting up a website and saying, hey, I'm Joe's uh, security business, you know, come come talk to me. I think you're right. I think they do bear some responsibility here for that. I also think that the individual the freelancers bear a lot of responsibility with this. I would be suspicious of anybody I hadn't met before. And, and when they said, I'm going to send you a check and you need to immediately buy this stuff, I would say, I'm going to buy that stuff as soon as the check clears, right? Right. If you want me yeah. to buy it right now, you can wire me the money. I don't even know if that would be good. Would that be good? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think they're, they're, as with so many of these things, you know, they're preying on people who are both in need of money. So right. there's a, and given the situation we find ourselves in today, that's, that's more true than ever. 
so they're in need of money, and chances are they're not sophisticated when it comes to their their understanding of the details of all of this banking stuff and you know high finance yep. and all those sorts of things. So absolutely, I mean, they see the money show up in their account, they think I've got the money. What, what right, and the scammers are the scammers are professional too. I mean, they're they're interacting with these folks. They're using Zoom calls. They're skyping to them. So the relationships they're establishing at first blush wouldn't seem to be unusual. You know, and, and I guess it seems like they're skilled enough scammers that you can understand why people would uh, get drawn in by them. Right. That is my story this week. Uh, we will, of course, have links to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day is uh, courtesy of the Bored Panda site. Uh, this is uh, a user who I believe uh, goes by the name Jakarmaka Baby. <laughs> I hope that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, it's sort of a, a classic uh, situation here of someone trying to get to someone to buy uh, some gift cards. But the person uh, who they're trying to scam here uh, knows what's going on and tries to string them out as long as possible. So I tell you what, Joe, I will play the part of the scammer, and you can play the part of the person who's stringing them along, and uh, it starts out like this. Jacob, uh, I'm in a conference meeting right now. I can't talk on the phone, but uh, let me know if you get my text. Thanks. Yes, I got your text just fine. Okay, good. I want you to carry out a specific task out for me right now. We will be able to do that for me now ASAP. Yes, I am completely available. I'm in a conference meeting right now, and I need to provide our clients with some gift cards. Can you confirm if we can get iTunes gift cards from the nearest store to you, ASAP? Sure, I will go to CVS. It will take about five minutes. Okay, good. I want you to go there right now and purchase five pieces of iTunes gift cards of $100 face value, each totaling $1,000. I'm at the store. I'll find the gift cards. That's a good idea. You can use the gift cards to buy lots of music from great bands like the Doobie Brothers or Korn. Uh, text me after you purchase. I'll tell you what to do with them. Let me know when you them. Okay, I need you to peel off the back label to reveal the encode and send pictures to me here with receipt ASAP. Hmm, looks like they're out of iTunes gift cards. Can we use Olive Garden gift cards instead? That would buy a lot of breadsticks. Look for eBay gift card, Steam, or Sephora gift card. So not Olive Garden? Not. Okay. I thought it would be nice to buy the whole company breadsticks. I'm buying Steam gift cards. Purchase five pieces of Steam cards of $100 face value each, totaling $1,000. This guy, not only did he do the math wrong, but he did it wrong twice. Mm. So they didn't have any $100 gift cards, but I bought you lots of $20 ones. And there's a picture here of a fistful of Steam gift cards. <laughs> Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, I need you to peel off the back label to reveal the encode and send pictures to me here with receipt ASAP. Okay, it's a lot of gift cards, so it will take a few minutes. By the way, I'm really sorry about the other day at work. I didn't mean to cut Jenny with those scissors. Okay, peel them and place the two out of two and send them. It's, it's okay, Jacob. Since this is an extra job, can I have a raise? I really need to buy more butter. Don't ask why. Okay, get in the codes. Yes, but be fast about the codes. What are these for anyway? Is your son having the problems again? Getting in my car now. How much is the raise? Jacob, I don't have much time. Send the code before you drive. Okay, I am finishing the pictures. Good. 
Your secretary, Jenny, told me just to redeem the cards for you, but I wanted to double check with you because I thought she might be mad about the scissors. Don't redeem it. Just send the pictures of the code. Follow my instructions, Jacob. I don't have much time. Wrong camera. Sorry, that is an old photo. Send the codes, Jacob. How do I turn the camera around? Yes, the back camera. I don't have much time, Jacob. Oh, okay. I understand. So I have a surprise for you. I redeemed all the gift cards, less work for you. And as a present, I bought the office employees a copy of Farming Simulator 2020. I know how much you love farms and coats. I didn't say you should redeem the cards. Well, Kristen said that, so you need to talk to her. Just peel and send me the picture e-codes. I can't. I already redeemed all of them and bought Farming Simulator. And then there's a picture of Farming Simulator 20. (laughs) I'm in a conference meeting right now. I can't talk, Jacob. You made everyone very happy with the new farm video game. Our client are waiting on the cards to confirm it. Are you planning with your job? I know, but they will like Farming Simulator better. You can grow barley and wheat. I'm planning with my job. I am the company planner. Are you are, are you playing with your job? Our client don't have much time. Which client is this again? Because Kristen said to get them the farming simulator. Where are the cards? I redeemed them and bought a lot of copies of the farm video game. Then I put the cards in the microwave because we didn't need them anymore. That's what Kristen said you said. So she should get in trouble, not me. I can buy a different game instead, like Goat Simulator. Again, your love for goats is very apparent. You're playing with your job, Jacob. Just tell me what game to buy. Is it Kristen I sent an errand or you? I'm not playing with my job. I'm just following instructions. It's me, but you told me yesterday that Kristen would tell me what to do today. Who is the boss here? You, an idiot. All right, well, let's go. Let's jump to the end here. All right, so we're condensing this here. We're going right to the part where he's gotten some some eBay cards and he's bought an eBay card and he sent the guy, the scammer, a picture of a $50 eBay card. And the scammer says, Yes, so send them. Wait, my phone isn't working. Oh, no. What? Just peel one by one and send it to me. Oh, no, no, no. I dropped them in the street drain. Sorry, this isn't worth it anymore. I've had a good time, but I quit. I'm going to Dingle Brothers. They will dingle me far better. You can't do that. The cards are very important, you know. That... I already quit, and I took all the drugs from the office already, and I lied. I didn't drop the cards, but I used them to buy vintage soda and Bibles. Sorry, Brett, but I won this time. Show me those cards you you redeem, Jacob. Yes? Show me the ones you redeem. Okay, and then there's a picture of an eBay... in the back of an eBay card with the redemption code where you scratch off is, is Photoshop to read, go away, scammer. Peel them and send them to me. According to all I know of laws of aviation, there is no way a bee should be able to fly. Its wings are too small to get its fat little body off the ground. The bee, of course, flies anyway because the bee doesn't care what human thinks is impossible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he, I mean, I, that's, that's great. So according to this post, Jacob uh, wasted about three to four hours of this guy's time. That's three to four hours he wasn't scamming somebody else. Uh, Jacob right. did say in, earlier in the article that he that he used a burner phone to do this, which is probably a good idea mm-hmm. because he probably really got this guy angry. 
Yeah, it's interesting too to note as you read through this uh, that, and unsurprisingly, I suppose that the the scammer was doing a lot of sort of cutting and pasting. Like the scammer had a lot of pre-built responses to things that that popped up over and over again. To I'm I'm picturing the scammer with multiple people on the line at the same time. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Just, this guy's just, this guy's yeah. probably got three three or four people going at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more to it. It's a pretty funny one. So, uh, as always, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And that is our catch of the day. All right, Joe, I, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Sanjay Gupta from MyTech. Uh, and he was sharing information that uh, they've been tracking. This is about how cyber criminals are capitalizing on the recently deceased and creating synthetic identities. Really interesting stuff here. Here's my conversation with Sanjay Gupta. I think people know there's been a lot of data breaches over the last few years. So there's probably hundreds of millions of records that exist out there. But additionally, as people, you know, they die and, and their data is still available, these fraudsters, they've kind of gotten onto this. So in, in the previous days, the idea was called ghosting, where you would just steal... Uh, information from a recently deceased person and maybe look at their bank account, et cetera. But recently what's been happening is that they've been using these individuals' social security numbers and then tying it to the data that's been stolen to create uh, synthetic IDs. So they would basically take a social security number, come up with a name, an address, use a date of birth. With the recent technologies around deep fakes, you can also attach a photo to it. And so all of that would be used to create, let's say, an ID, and that ID would be used for, for very nefarious purposes. And what sort of uh, stuff would they use it for? So typically, uh, where we're seeing it now is in the financial institutions where individuals, uh, these fraudsters would use these IDs to start to open up bank accounts or try to, try to get loans or credit. And what, what typically happens is that as this uh, fraudulent ID is used for this purpose, the best thing that happens is that the ID gets rejected, not on the basis that it's a fake, but it's never been seen before. So it looks like what, what's referred to as a thin file client, meaning that an individual doesn't have a credit history. So if you were a recent graduate person or if you're an immigrant, and then the data bureaus actually will now create a file on this person to make them look like a real person. Now, what typically happens when someone passes away? Is there a process by which their, for example, their social security number gets flagged as, as belonging to someone who's deceased? So you actually have to file separate forms. Typically, it's done through the mortuaries. So you file the forms and let all of the financial institutions, let them know that this person has just recently deceased and there's a secondary or, you know, maybe the spouse is now the caretaker of the account or there's a trust fund. Etc. So typically, sometimes that doesn't uh, people forget or, or they take too long. But even then, these records still get filed and these social security numbers are still valid sometimes and they can still be used. So it doesn't even matter if they were recently deceased. Sometimes these things are uh, existing for, for quite some time. And, and so what are your recommendations for folks to protect themselves against this? So first of all, like if you, um, the second area where they get it, where these fraudsters get Social security numbers are from recently born kids. So, you know, you, you have a kid who's got, just got born. They have a social security attached to it. What I would recommend there is actually set up a bank account for these kids up front. So as soon as they have a bank account, then they become part of the system. Whereas for recently deceased, you should really look at just filing all the paperwork that are relevant and making sure that, you know, 
uh, notifying all, all of the different companies that uh, may be used, utilizing that particular uh, individual's assets. And for companies that are trying to onboard individuals that look like fraudsters, you typically want to ask for their ID to kind of look at. So what, at MyTech, what we do is, you know, we have the capability of reading a, an identity card or driver's license and tell you to a certain extent if it's fake or not. But then also asking for their selfie. And, and the selfie brings two pieces of the puzzle. The first one is we can actually check to see if the person's live at the, at the time when they're enrolling for a new account. But also after the selfie's taken, match the photo to the actual selfie that was just recently taken before you set up the account. So those are kind of the things that I would recommend. So in matching that selfie, I mean, is that so you're matching a current photo with a, a photo that's on an, an existing ID, for example? That's exactly right. You would take current selfie of Dave who's just you know, applying for a new account. Uh, so most fraudsters don't want to use their real faces, right? They're going to mm. hide behind a veil. So a lot of the companies that we deal with aren't asking for the biometric, you know, for, for various reasons. But just that one step is a, is a fairly large uh, deterrent. Now, what happens to the families of these deceased people who get their identities taken over? Can the, the spending sprees of these crooks come back to haunt them? So typically in the synthetic world, now we're dealing uh, strictly in the synthetic identities. It's really a victimless crime because they've, sta- they've taken stolen information from various disparate parties and even made some stuff up. So really the victims are going to be, first of all, you know, if you are a, let's say, just a recent grad or an immigrant, then potentially you may be asked to provide extra documentation and or you may be given a loan, but at a higher interest rate amount. Typically these, these cases last you know, they're not done overnight. You're taking 12 to 15 to, to two years. So they're very craftily done by, hmm. you, know, you know, very, very hardened criminals. And they're going to wait the long game to, to kind of take advantage of this. Where do you suppose we're headed in the future? In other words, uh, do you see identification systems coming down the line that'll help prevent these sorts of things? Currently, this is a new type of fraud that's coming into the kind of, you know, the financial institutions, the marketplaces. Previously, it was more related to just real individuals trying to commit fraud or, you know, somebody stole my ID and they were trying to commit fraud. So what's going to happen is that we're going to start to see a lot more sharing of the data between different companies to say, oh, you know, we saw this activity or we saw this activity. And then being able to correlate and do what's called link analysis or clustering to determine what's really happening. Because the really hard thing is that these particular synthetic IDs and the fraudsters that are behind them, they're very, very, very patient. And they create the synthetic ID where they have real, you know, e-world, uh, let's say emails or LinkedIn profiles, anything that they'll leave a digital trail, what we call a breadcrumb, a digital breadcrumb of these individuals. So they feel and look and behave like real individuals. In fact, sometimes they will even take out loans and pay them back slowly. So then, uh, what they're trying to do is get as much loans and you know credit that they can get, and then after eighteen months, do a massive bust out. I see. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So they'll they'll establish credit, if you will, establish their presence and a little bit of credit, and then you know, they get that offer for more credit, and that's when they go and just take advantage of it, and I suppose disappear after that. That's exactly what happens. 
So I think, uh, you know, this is a fairly new type of crime that's happening. Uh, so I think the jury's still out on how to actually figure out from the perspective of the behavior of the patterns that are occurring, those techniques are going to come in the future. So one thing the audience should realize is that these are, are, are things that a lot of companies are working on. So if, if you do the right thing up front when you have somebody that's deceased or if you have a new child that's born into a family, take the steps to kind of protect yourself. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting, huh? Yeah, when, when that interview started and he starts talking about the thin client file for a credit report, I thought, is this an opportunity for a long scam? And at the end of the article, he shows, yes, it is, exactly. These guys will wait anywhere from a year to two years to take a big payout. You know, if you think about that, you open up a credit card and you maybe make a couple charges on it and you pay it off. Maybe you do a cash withdrawal and then turn around and just give that money right back to them. And that essentially builds your credit. What these guys are doing is they're hacking the FICO score, right? Because your FICO score is your measure of how good of a debtor you are. Mm-hmm. And the higher your FICO score, the more likely you are to pay back your stuff. So these guys get their FICO score. I'll bet they're watching what the FICO scores are because there are services that let you do that, like Credit Karma. When they see they get to a certain point, when they got that score up to a certain point, that's when they go for the payout. Maybe there's something that can be done to defend against that, that you watch the FICO score over time and you see that you know this FICO score didn't exist two years ago and now it exists and it's done nothing but go up for two years or for 18 months. And it's gotten to a point where you see the risk factor for big payouts going high. Then you say, okay, we're going to wait a couple of months before this. And at least not, if nothing else, that delays your, uh, your impact as a financial institution. I yeah. don't know. It's interesting that they're looking for the recently deceased or the recently born. And Sanjay says a good way to defend against having your kid's identity stolen is to open a bank account for them as soon as they're born. Hmm. So that gets them in the system so that somebody else can't create a credit profile for them already. It already exists. And then on that, I guess you can use uh, credit monitoring services to know what's going on uh, with your kid's account. Hmm. You know, the reason that kids are targeted is due to a change in the tax code that went into effect in 1987. Before 1987, if you wanted to declare your children as a dependent, you only needed to provide their names. There's a great section in the book Freakonomics, which was written by Dubner and Levitt, uh, about the day when 7 million American children simply disappeared. And that's because when you had to file your taxes, now you had to provide a social security number for your kids. So there were people that didn't have social security numbers for their imaginary children and weren't willing to commit the act of of fraud of applying for a fake social security number. So they just stopped declaring them on their taxes. Interesting. Um, That requirement has made it so that when my children were born, I went out and applied for a social security number for them immediately. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. I could I could declare them on my taxes as dependents. In 1987, the law was that if they were younger than five, you didn't need a social security number. But I don't know if that's still the case. I do know that when when my children were born, I got them social security numbers immediately. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yep. Uh, getting a selfie with your ID that's interesting. I know of at least one company that requires you to uh, send them a picture of you holding your ID. With the, hmm. with the photo of, on your ID clearly visible so that they can see it's you. And Sanjay points out why this is the case. Fraudsters do not want to show their faces. I keep thinking about what stops me from doing this. If I'm going to assume somebody's identity, what's wrong with me showing my face? But these guys are not looking to assume someone's identity. They're looking to exploit it in the short term. They're looking to make a big payout, and then whoever borrowed the money from them is going to be looking for them. So these guys aren't trying to have an alternate identity. They're just trying to make money. 
for some reason, when I think of stealing someone's identity, I still think about assuming that identity and living as a different person. I don't know. Maybe there's something deeply psychologically <laughs> wrong with me. Well, <laughs> you know what? I mean, to that point, uh, I have to admit it reminds me of the original Highlander movie. Right. Which yeah. is how, you know, the, the <laughs> for those who are unfamiliar, there was a race of immortals. And uh, one of the plot points is that that's how this one of the immortals uh, establishes new identities. He looks for the basically um, children who died in childbirth and then assumes the identity of someone like that. That's, I, I suppose, when the first time I saw that movie was the first time I considered that as being a possibility. I hadn't really thought about it before. I always think of Pete Hornberger from 30 Rock who, as the season goes on, becomes more and more desperate to get away from his family. <laughs> and at the end of the season, he's he's telling Liz how he's going to disappear. <laughs> right. It's, it's right. I don't know. I love that show. It's a very funny show. That small story arc is is one of my favorites. Uh, I disagree that, that this is a victimless crime. Uh, Sanjay kind of said this is a victimless crime. This is not really a victimless crime. We're all the victims because, uh, you know, us uh, customers of these banking institutions are the victims because the cost of this crime is spread out over our interest rates and our fees. And the banks really aren't the victims because they're still going to make their money, right? They're mm-hmm. going to pass that cost on to you. That's how we are all the victims. And, and yeah, it's a small impact to us in terms of maybe a couple extra dollars a year in fees. But it would be nice to have that money back, wouldn't it, Dave? <laughs> yes, sure would. <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks to Sanjay Gupta from MyTech for joining us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 